0: In this episode of Desert Island Torah, we have the Zichut of speaking to Ralph David Silverstein, Skan Rosh Hashiva and Gemara Ram at Yeshiva writer. Rav Silverstein received smicha from YU and has a master's degree in Talmud from the Bernard River Graduate School. He previously was assistant rabbi at the Riverdale Jewish Centre member of the Judaic Studies faculty at SAR and has taught Tanakh and Gemara at MTA. Also, since making Aliyah, he has served as director of the overseas program at Yeshivat Hester Petach Tikva. Thank you so much, Raul Silverstein, for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. Oh, Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So it's Desert Island Torah, three pieces of Torah that you would take to a desert island. What do they mean to you? Why are they so important to you? Really looking forward to learning and finding out your three pieces. So if we jump right in, should we go with your first piece?
1: Absolutely. So uh, first of all, I, I just want to again thank you for having me on the episode on the podcast. And uh, it's actually a very cathartic experience for me to be able to think about uh, what are the three pieces of Torah that I'd be able to bring to a desert island. So again, thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, the first one I would focus on is actually a passage from uh, Rabbi Yehuda Amital. Uh, Rabbi Amital is actually commenting or at least referencing a Gemara. Where the Gemara says that uh, Avram Avinu was able to observe all of the Torah, right? Even Eruv Tafshilin, right? Now, obviously, from a historical perspective, that's quite difficult to imagine, right? Eruv Tafshilin is a rabbinic uh, um, commandment. So, how could Avram Avinu, right, observe all biblical commandments? And how could that post date him? And how could he observe a rabbinic commandment, which certainly is many years after him? So, Amitabh sort of tries to reconceptualize, rethink about what the Gemara is teaching us. And he explains that what the Gemara is saying is not that Abraham actually fulfilled every single mitzvah in the Torah physically, right? It's not that Abraham wore a or Abraham wore a seat, right? or Abraham shook a Lulav, right? But what Rehavital says basically is that the novelty is that Abraham was able to tap into the spiritual and religious messages of these mitzvot without actually fulfilling the physical expressions right, of these values themselves, right. So when we think about mitzvot, we think about them in physical terms. Rabbi Mechal says that the shift that happens from before Matan Torah until after Matan Torah is that the avot, because of their great spiritual aptitude, they were able to tap in the spiritual powers of the mitzvot, even without performing them themselves. But after Matan Torah, there's a shift, and God says that that model is no longer an option. What we do instead nowadays is that we perform the physical manifestations of the misvot, but as Rami Tal teaches us, we're always reminded that these physical expressions are not arbitrary, right? they're not simply sort of habits that we engage in, but they're actually sort of vehicles to encounter profound theological messages and eternal divine values. So for me, the first uh, passage that I'm referencing here really speaks to the idea that when we think about Halachic observance and being involved in all the nitty gritty of halachic detail it's always important to remember that these details and all these physical expressions are actually manifestations of divine virtues and the more we understand the virtues that we're engaging in the more practicing those sort of physical expressions or the virtues will actually transform us
0: absolutely and i think it really ties into like why was avraham chosen and i think the call of lech lecha is kind of echoing that kind of goal as if like Hashem proclaimed to to, like since he created the world there's a mission to go out and you know whilst repairing the world is also keeping mitzvah. and I think that's a really interesting um, analysis
1: yeah I mean I think people oftentimes can struggle and say well wait a second like how does keeping mitzvot in any way help sort of facilitate making the world a better place. So I think the reason why this passage is so powerful is because it reminds us that actually by performing the vote, right, you're actually becoming one with the messaging that's sort of coming through to you uh, via the mitzvah. And by becoming more one with those virtues, you become more godly, and becoming more godly, you do more godly activity. And then by extension, you make the world a better place. So for me, just that sort of calling, that like, you know, doing them as vote are not simply sort of like actions that we do by virtue of, uh, of, of rote, but they actually speak to something much more powerful, I think is an inspire, inspiring way to conceptualize what it means to be a halachic Jew.
0: Absolutely. So should we go into your second piece?
1: Sure. So the second piece actually comes from um, a different uh, personality, although again, a modern personality, Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg. So Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg is known for as the three-day ish. Uh, he's a Holocaust survivor, and he's a, a fascinating Torah personality. And uh, he has a tshuva, which on the surface seems uh, fairly innocent. The tshuva is talking about why it is we don't say the bracha, why, would it, why we don't say a bracha on the mitzvah of Mishloach Manot. Right? So he wonders, wait a second, you know, we have this mitzvah during the day on Purim. It's called Mishloach Manot. So why don't we say a bracha when we perform this mitzvah? So he, he starts to begin his analysis and he claims that basically, if you expand outwards for a second and start to think about, well, you know what? We don't really say brachot on any interpersonal commandments, right? Which is which is strange because it says in the Gemara that we're supposed to say mea brachot b'chol yom, right? So in the classic halachic literature, there's a discussion about, well, wait a second, how do you hit a hundred brachot every day? Like for example, on Shabbat, where you don't have uh, the Shmona Esrei that has all the dictionary, additional petitionary elements. So presumably the easiest way to solve that problem would just be to say blessings on interpersonal commandments. Every time you honor your parents, every time you visit the sick, every time you do you should say a bracha. So the 3DH uses the example of Manod, but expands upon it and says, you know what, maybe we could start to think about why it is the Torah wouldn't want us to say blessings on, on interpersonal commandments. And he argues that if you were to say a blessing, a bracha, on an interpersonal commandment. So effectively what you'd be doing is you'd be turning a subject, namely a human being, right? Into an object, an object, right? You'd be taking a person and turning them into a lulav, right? And therefore he argues that, what is the whole purpose of interpersonal commandments, right? The whole purpose of mitzvot beid adam le-makom is to bring us closer to God, right? But the purpose of beid adam is to use the mitzvot as a vehicle to bring us closer to other human beings. And therefore, imagine, for example, you go to a hospital, and before you went to a room, you said, Baruch Atah Hashem, El Cholam Shere or Acholam. Right? So how would that make the person feel? right? It would make the person feel as though you're only performing this action with the goal of trying to score mitzvah points. Right? And therefore, the power here of, I think, the three-day Aisha's comment, is the genius of the halachic system is that not only are the details right? Reflective of larger values. But even sometimes the absence of details, right? Even the not saying the bracha here is actually teaching us a very powerful lesson about what it means to perform mitzvot bin Adam l'chaveiro. And specifically the example of mishloch manot the whole purpose of mishloch manot, right? Is to bring people together. What does it say in the Megillah? That we were an am mifuzar mifurat, right? So the goal of mishloch manod is to generate ahava v'yachva, and if we're always going around and saying a bracha of lishloch manod, we're given the impression, even if, even if it's an erroneous impression, we're given the impression that somehow we're only doing this because we have to, right? But by not saying the bracha, we're actually saying, yeah, we know God wants us to do this, but we're not going to make this mitzvah right now about God, right? We're going to make it about God by not mentioning God, right? And by doing so, I think for me, it really highlights a powerful idea that when we engage in our own life of mitzvot, particularly interpersonal mitzvot, right, they, they should bring people together, right. This may relate to my first uh, piece of Torah, right, that mitzvot are supposed to do something, and even interpersonal mitzvot aren't just there for mitzvah points; they're there with the goal of actually, you know, changing society. And I think for me, that's a really sort of powerful message.
0: Why would you choose that for the desert island?
1: Well, the way I think about sort of the desert island model is I think about sort of like things that would sort of, you know, even in the space where I'm by myself, continue to inspire me, right? So even though there's nobody else around me, obviously, I don't have the opportunity to not say a blessing on interpersonal commandments, right? At least for me, the idea of being on the desert island is, you know, being inspired by the fact that this Torah that we are connected to, right, even on a desert island, right, generates such profound wisdom, right, that you know, it will help sort of uh, create inspiration, even in the space which has its own challenges, for example, on Desert Island. But at least for me, you know, these two examples of uh, pieces of Torah, right, speak to something that I feel very passionately about, which is the idea that, you know, mitzvot are supposed to be transformative. And every dimension of sort of the halachic system is trying to facilitate that. And even, for example, in this case, the, the interpersonal, which people oftentimes get confused about, right, is trying to, do something on a societal level. And I'd imagine that if we sort of really internalize this message, think about how it would generate a different sort of uh, tenor of conversation among people. They realize that, you know, there's something going on here that's supposed to be facilitated by the lack of saying the blessing itself.
0: So interesting and really unique choice. So should we go into your third piece?
1: Sure. My, my third is a more of a classical uh, ratio. And I felt like, you know, it wouldn't be fair if I only picked, uh, you know, 20th century achronim, you know, I felt like that wouldn't be doing justice to the totality of their big tradition. So here I'm going back to a, a classic, and that is the Balei Tosvot. So there's a tosvot in Baba Kama, uh, which is, I think it's on Dat Pei Zion, which is a really incredible tosvot. And it talks about something which on the surface seems to be very technical. It talks about whether or not a blind person is obligated to admit Uh The Gemara there quotes from the and the Gemara quotes the view of Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda says a blind person is actually exempt, right, from all mitzvot. And there's a discussion about what exactly that means. But Toswit says there that uh, even though uh, a blind person is formally exempt from all mitzvot, according to Rabbi Yehuda, on a biblical level, on a rabbinic level, he's obligated, right? Or she's obligated, right? So any individual who's blind, even according to Rabbi Yehuda, would be obligated, albeit on a rabbinic level. He also has this one line where he says, he says, why is it so critical to obligate the blind person in its vote? He says, because if we didn't obligate the blind person in its vote, right, then effectively that blind person would be, for all intents and purposes, a non-Jew, right? That's a pretty bold claim that somehow if you're not obligated in its vote, right, you're, so to speak, a non-Jew. Obviously, from a formal halakhic perspective, you're still Jewish. But the substance of your Judaism is seriously compromised if you don't have this set of obligations. When I learned this Tosaf, I said to myself, "Oh, wait a second! It's not totally precise, right? Because even if you want to argue that Rabbi huda thinks that a blind person is entirely exempt from mitzvah, even on a rabbinic level, he's certainly different than a non-Jew. Because a non-Jew, if he performs a mitzvah or she performs a mitzvah, there's no ki mitzvah, right? There's no sort of metaphysical change in the world." Right. Whereas the blind person, he may not be obligated to misvote, but certainly if he shakes a right, it is consequential. So it's not totally true what Tosvot says that he's not exactly like a non-Jew, even if he's not obligated in this vote, because he can perform his vote in a qualitatively different way than a non-Jew. So I was thinking about it, and I realized that Tosot is saying here something really profound. Toswhat's saying that Jewish identity is not just about the performance of misvote, although that obviously is central. But it's about being commanded in mitzvah, right? And somehow, if the blind person, he can perform all the mitzvot he wants. But if he's not commanded in any mitzvah, so by extension, he kind of is a non-Jew, not in a formal halachic sense that he's, you know, he could marry another Jew, but in the sense of like, what is the substance of his Jewish identity if he has no relationship to the institution of being commanded? And for me, this is like an extremely sort of powerful message that. Uh, For Judaism, the central piece of what it means to be a Jew is to live what I would call a self-transcendent posture. What do I mean by that? Well, think about what commandedness means, right? Commandedness means that you anchor your identity in something bigger than you, right? And therefore the blind person, if he just engages in all the mitzvot, divorces, commandedness, then his life basically begins and ends with him. Some days he wants to perform the mitzvah, some days he doesn't, right? And therefore there's no element of like transcending the self in order to find the self. But the idea of being commanded, right, is that you anchor your sense of commitment in something bigger than you, right? And by doing that, right, you live a self-transcendent life, which I think for Tosvot is the definitional feature of really what Judaism is trying to teach us. And therefore, if you don't have that, right, so in some kind of like crazy sense, not really Jewish, right? So I think that for me, that's like an incredibly powerful passage about like, what is Judaism's core claim? You know, I may be overly reading here into the Tosot here, but I think it's like a failed reading. The idea that Judaism's core claim is about anchoring your identity in something bigger than you. And therefore, you can marvel, say, for example, gadol ha-mitsubev osem mishin o-mitsubev, right? That it's better to be commanded and perform a mitzvah than to do it as a volunteer, which is totally counterintuitive, right? Everybody would assume that, you know, the volunteer, they actively choose, right? But the challenge of the volunteer, obviously, is that some days they choose and sometimes they choose not to. Whereas the person who's commanded right, he or she always has a responsibility to think beyond themselves and engage in the mitzvah. And I think for me, that's like, uh, even on a desert island, that would be like an inspiring way to sort of conceptualize the world.
0: Absolutely, and you mentioned about being commanded. It's like when we think about the first story in shit, Adam and Chava, when they com- were commanded to even the tree, the pasuk doesn't just say you can eat from anything it says, but you can only eat from the tree of not life, but the tree of knowledge. And I think that is a really essential part of that, as in we're commanded to do something. It's not just about doing them. It's what it's about. The fact that we're commanded. Um, and I think Rav Lichtenstein speaks about this in by his light, picking and choosing. We don't just pick and choose. We're commanded. And I think that's a really important, um, segue into this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think also, you know, a lot of times, like um, when people think about commandedness, they think about it in terms of like, uh, you know, obedience and subservience. But I I actually think about it differently. I mean, I think that the beauty of commandedness is not just that you're subservient or that you're an evid Hashem in the sense that you're being obedient. right? But if you think about it, like what does it mean to find yourself, right? To find yourself, there has to be an anchor beyond you, right? pulling you in a direction to sort of make you your best self. So I think that even from the perspective of like personal growth, right, having your identity anchored in a sense of commandedness is certainly religiously beneficial because ultimately it reminds us that sort of, you know, the world is about us, but it's not entirely about us, right? So I think that commandedness is more than just obedience, right? It's about sort of like living a life where, you know, you acknowledge your own centrality to you, but you realize at the end of the day, you are not the center of the ultimate world, right? God is the center of the ultimate world and sort of living with that sort of back and forth about, you know... On the one hand you're very central to your own life but realizing your limitations i think is very much at the core of what commandedness is all about
0: absolutely Um, and really unique choices um, connecting to mitzvah, and i think it's really relevant and important to think about
1: yeah i mean i think that uh you know when i was trying to sort of think a little more about you know what are the uh, other possible texts that i would choose so obviously, you know, there's a million great passages from the Torah that I could sort of highlight um, on a desert island. But I think that, you know, these three in particular, they're coming from different schools. In other words, let's say Rev Amital, is very much coming from like the world of Hungarian Jewry, is right? somebody who himself is a Holocaust survivor, he comes to Israel, and he's sort of very much part of the project of returning to Israel and realizing the miracle of the horror of the Holocaust, the national rebirth in the state of Israel, and his Torah very much in many ways is sort of sensitive to sort of like what's going on in the world and sort of the implications of, you know, how things are evolving and things are changing. At the same time, he's a thinker who has an expansive canon, right? He reads everything. So I think that like, you know, he's sort of like one archetype that I've tried to highlight. Um, Sri dh also a Holocaust survivor, very much part of the Lithuanian school of, of Torah learning. And I think that, you know, he also has an academic uh, background, academic training. And I think that, you know, he, he sort of represents a different genre, right? He's a student of Slobodka, and um, he, he's somebody who's sort of, like, not exactly in the same sort of, like, intellectual mold in terms of how he sees things as sort of omnipot. And then, obviously, the Dalya Tosvot, you know, they're living in the Middle Ages. And uh, even though, you know, you read the Tosvot sometimes and you feel like the Tosvot is just sort of like, you know, uh, an attempt to sort of harmonize different sugyot. I think that uh, you know one of the things you realize when you study Torah, especially when you study Talmud and you study the sense of Rishonim, is that Rishonim um, themselves are oftentimes making very profound theological claims, right, through their very legalistic analysis. So that, now that we're talking, I'm realizing that uh, my passion for trying to find meaning in legal details is actually manifesting itself in all three pieces of uh, the Torahs that uh, I picked for this podcast, right, that Rabami Mittal, of uh, the street of age and now even the toast Coast. so i'm realizing about myself that uh, for me that is sort of a, a, a virtue that i find to be like uh, something really compelling and something that i really feel deeply passionate about
0: so interesting and thank you so much for coming on and sharing
1: thank you so much for inviting me it's been uh, really been great to be able to study torah and talk to her together
0: absolutely thank you so much Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisra. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.